so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Are you done talking? Is he done talking? Oh, sorry. Lindsay missed that. Uh, Hold on, pause. It cut out on me. (laughs) Everything stopped. Everything stopped and got quiet. You're literally in the middle of his sentence. (laughs) So sorry. Okay, pick back up where you were. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the URLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the URLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today is my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello there. And sitting in for Brent Leatherwood is the woman behind the culture section. Uh, We've talked about her many times on the podcast, Megan Smith. Hello, from the other side. (laughs) Yeah, so we're excited to have Megan uh, join us. (laughs) That's really cool. Hello from the other side. So we're pumped (laughs) to have Megan uh, join us today. She's going to be sitting in for Brent. Brent asked me to promise you that he is coming back. He has not abdicated uh, his, uh, you know, podcast hosting role, but he's taking his family. That's right, his culture throne. He's taking his family uh, on a great vacation this week. I've seen pictures that he's put up on Instagram. Looks like they're having a great time. Uh, So we'll miss him and look forward to having him back next week. And also later in the show, we'll talk to a special guest, our friend and former colleague, Andrew Walker, uh, who's up at Southern seminary now, but Lindsay, so that we can get into this week's episode, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. So this week on the featured articles from ERLC.com, we have an all ladies featured lineup. And so first off, we have an article by Missy Branch, who is at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and she speaks some hope into the midst of this, of the racial issues going on in our country. And The title of her piece is Why Hope Will Sustain Us Through the Pain, Trusting in God While Laboring for Reconciliation. And we just thought it was important to have a piece like this that pointed us to the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have for transformation, and the hope that we have for hearts to be changed. Lindsay, I took the time to just read this piece. Missy is someone that I that I know personally and just love her uh, heart for the Lord. But as I was reading through this, it is really, really beautiful. It is it is powerful and striking. And so I would encourage people uh, to take the time just to hear from her. I mean, Missy is a, is a black woman who is sharing uh, straight from her heart about uh, what, what God is trying to show us, teach us uh, in the middle of this moment. Yes, it is definitely worth reading. And we are so thankful for her vulnerability and next up, we have a piece by Katie Blackburn. And actually, this piece has to do with an adoption situation, but it applies to many other situations and especially racial injustice that we're experiencing right now. The title is Why Proximity Changes How We Love Others, the Imago Day and Sticking by People in Messy Situations. And she tells a story of befriending um, this girl who was unable to care for her new child. And they ended up uh, adopting this child, but they also have kept a close relationship with this girl, walking with her through 
some really messy situations. And I just love this line from her post. The, the girl's name, she changed the name for privacy, but Sarah. But she says, Sarah and everyone created with the Imago Day, which is everyone, need people to get close to them and people who believe in miracles, but who tangibly love them while they wait for one. And I just thought it was so poignant. Um, such a good piece that would meet us in a variety of different situations that we face today. And then finally, we have a piece uh, by Catherine Parks that marks the 48th anniversary of Title IX. And it's really important because we're in the midst of a situation that potentially threatens some of Title IX's benefits. So the title of the piece is How Title IX's Benefits for Women May Be Threatened by the Bostock Ruling. So Andrew Walker, our guest today, is going to talk a little bit about this Bostock ruling later on. Um, but in it, the Supreme Court redefined how you interpret sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And what this can do is wipe out some of the benefits for women um, as athletes if they're forced to compete against uh, transgender athletes who would be biologically male and clearly have a God-given advantage over women. And so Catherine is just saying that the way that God has made men and women is on purpose. And we should celebrate the way that God has made men and women. And we should be okay that that's on display. And we want to continue to see Title IX's benefits for future generations of of girls for many more years. That's right, Lindsay. Um, Chelsea Sublik, who was on the podcast last week, actually shared some really helpful things about uh, why this why the Bostock ruling is potentially uh, really bad for women and the numerous ways that it could affect uh, women in terms of uh, their specifically, uh, as Catherine writes about here, one of the biggest ways is, is erasing women's sports of, of keeping biological females uh, at a competitive disadvantage because uh, in many cases they didn't, they'd find themselves competing against biological males. And that's just one way uh, that the potential uh, fallout of the Bostock ruling could have some really negative effects on on women and going forward. And so one of the there's still a lot of questions remaining from the ruling and what it means, because honestly, the justices in there, uh, Justice Gorsuch, in his uh, opinion, didn't actually spell out uh, many of the different ways or implications of the ruling. And so a lot of this is just wait and see. Uh, but, I, but I think things like Catherine's uh, piece that make the case for why uh, it is so important for women to be able to compete uh, on on a fair and equal basis uh, is something that we need to continue to put out there. Well, and as some scholars have said in the next couple of weeks, as the Supreme Court releases their decisions on some other cases, we'll begin to understand a little bit more about how this is going to affect us. So those are just several of the pieces among many good ones that we have on our site this week. Um, but Josh and Megan, that's your look at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to our culture section for the week. And, you know, normally Brent would be here to walk us through this, but since he's not, we'll try to do basically what we did last week, which is just kind of have a more of a roundtable discussion as we kind of talk through major items in culture this week. And as we get started, we're going to start with something that seems like we forgot about, which is coronavirus. In the midst of everything else going on, as we have watched, you know, such massive cultural upheaval related to racial justice in America, uh, it seems like we have let the coronavirus pass us by. But the truth is, it's still very much here and still very much a threat. Uh, Axios reported that uh, on Saturday, the U.S. reported more than 33,000 new confirmed cases of coronavirus, which was the highest total since May 1st. And 
They, they also say that it's a sign that the outbreak isn't slowing down nationwide, even as the number of new cases in the original hotspots like New York continues to drop because states like California and Texas and Florida and Arizona are reporting a surge of infections as they move to fully reopen parts of the economy and return to normal life. And one of the things that is coming from that is the fact that young people now uh, are testing positive at an increasingly high rate. Uh, Florida, for example, their governor, Ron DeSantis, said on Friday that the median age uh, was 37 for newly diagnosed coronavirus cases over the last week when 62% of new cases for the week of June 7th are for people under 45 years old, which is a huge change uh, from what they had been seeing because uh, previously infections uh, had been skewing much older and affecting much older people. And so uh, it's really something for us to see here that, that coronavirus, despite everything else going on, it's really not going away. Yeah, I think that's really good, Josh. I we have really forgotten about it, it seems. We're going out and it just seems like, especially with summer picking up and people going on vacation and the pools, like we've just kind of forgotten coronavirus is there, um, but things are still increasing. Um, cases are still increasing. Yeah. And I think it's like we said last week, it's the quarantine, shoot, what's the word? What's the phrase I used last week? Quarantine, um, when you get over something. Fatigue. You, Fatigue. fatigue. Thank you. Yes. Okay. And it's like we talked about last week. It's the quarantine fatigue. People are tired of being locked up. Um, and so it's hard to get them to go back into their homes and to practice some more quarantine in the midst of these cases rising. I also saw in the news this morning that places like New York, original hotspots, are considering a quarantine for visitors from places like Florida and other hotspots. So they'll have to come in quarantine for 14 days. So um, it's pretty crazy. Also, a lot of these young people, the good news is the cases aren't as severe. So that is good news in the midst of it. Um, but it's it's from going out to different restaurants and bars and being among a bunch of people. And you know, young people like us uh, think we're immune to these things and that it's not going to happen to us. And so we just continue to have to continue to be alert and aware for the sake of our neighbors. That's exactly right, Lindsay. And it is something to see that, you know, I remember all the way back to kind of the beginning of the coronavirus spreading in the United States, uh, seeing a lot of, you know, videos circulating online, specifically of young people or posts from young people on social media or, or Twitter, Instagram, whatever, uh, talking about, you know, just, just not being afraid uh, to, you know, to contract the coronavirus. But as we're seeing these case numbers continue to increase, I know like here in North Carolina, the governor has paused their state's reopening. I'm not sure, but I think he might be like, this might be the first state that that is paused uh, in their reopening process. And as they are doing that, they've said that in public now in the state of North Carolina, you have to wear a mask. Uh, and so there's been a lot of debate about that, people talking about uh, whether or not that's an infringement on people's civil liberties. But the, the funny thing is uh, to me, or the interesting thing to me is the fact that he's not saying if you live in this certain place or whatever, it's, it's in the state. If you're going out in public, you have to wear a mask. And I don't know about you guys, but have but wearing those masks in public, these homemade ones, it's not pleasant. And so it makes me feel really bad for people who they have to to do their jobs, uh, be out in public all day, which means they have to wear a mask all day because that's just that's just tough. I mean, imagine working at Amazon or something and slinging packages, hard, hard work, probably in a warmish warehouse and having to wear those masks all day long. So yeah, I mean, for, this, for the sake it, it of those awful. friends. Yeah, for the sake of those friends, uh, we can do it. It's because it won't be like this forever. That's right. 
One thing I saw this week, which is really interesting as we're talking about mandates of masks and just different rules going in places, Apple, um, which is infiltrating every part of our life, um, is updating with their newest Apple Watch um, system a way to detect when you begin washing your hands and it will prompt you to wash your hands for 20 seconds, which is like the CDC's recommended time for washing your hands. So it will hear the sound of the running water and like you rubbing your hands together and um, it will track that, which is just so interesting. Yeah, I saw that, Megan, and it's it's wild. What's like big brother to me. So I am an Apple Watch holdout and I'm kind of self-righteous about it in my heart if I'm confessing it. <laughs> Part of that is because I'm a hypochondriac. So if it was telling me my heart rate, I would always think something was wrong with me. <laughs> but... um but I just think that's crazy that they can detect when you're washing your hands. It can detect when you're breathing or not breathing and stressed. That's just a little too creepy for me. So I'm still rocking the Series 1 Apple Watch, so I have no idea if the update is going to make it that far down. I would doubt it. But uh, I'll tell you that even, you know, Lindsay, it is kind of strange because you'll be wearing your Apple Watch. It'll tell you to breathe and you realize, oh, because I'm not breathing right now because I'm angry or or whatever else is going on. So it, it is kind right, of, I've been holding you know, my breath. it is kind of Right. Disconcerting to know that this company knows, you know, this device knows me better than I know myself many times. So moving on, uh, I wanted to take a second and just spotlight something that happened in our own denomination. So Mississippi Baptist uh, this week uh, asked the state legislature to remove uh, the Confederate symbol from the state flag. This is something that has been a big deal in Mississippi. I was having a conversation uh, with some friends about this earlier this week, and some people were like, what are you talking about? So if you don't know, uh, as a part of like built into the Mississippi state flag is the Confederate flag or what is technically the Confederate battle flag that was used by the Army of Northern Virginia, but what we typically refer to as the Confederate flag, it is built into the state flag in Mississippi. And for many years, there has been considerable debate and, and previous efforts made uh, to change the state flag uh, to have that symbol removed. Well, this week, and in kind of an unprecedented fashion, the executive director, which is the, the state leader of the Mississippi Baptist, joined by the president of the Mississippi Baptist Convention and all of the officers and all of the past presidents. I mean, this was an incredible show of force uh, to come out and back this statement calling for the removal of the Confederate flag from the Mississippi flag or calling for the change of the Mississippi flag. And this was something to me as a Southern Baptist that was so impressive and, and such a big deal because in the state of Mississippi, you know, this was not an easy move necessarily for these guys to make. They are going to face considerable pushback for this. Uh, so for these men to stand up and say uh, that for the sake of our brothers and sisters who not only find this offensive, but that every time uh, they see the Confederate flag and especially as they see it on something like their state flag, uh, it, it represents uh, a history of injustice to them. Uh, that's something that they shouldn't have to deal with. And so if, to see these men step up and make this statement in support of their uh, you know, fellow image bearers, to me, was incredibly moving. Yeah, this is a, a big deal that we should be proud of, Josh, among Southern Baptists and then many others who are calling for this. Uh, I did want to point out that Ligon Duncan, who is not SBC, he's a Presbyterian pastor, but he wrote he wrote something on this that the lieutenant governor and the Speaker of the House of Mississippi had asked him to write. I just thought it was really good um, and very poignant and a good way to understand why we should be for the Confederate flag being removed 
as part of the Mississippi state flag. Um, and it's, it's all about love of neighbor and that the call of Christ calls us to die to some things if they're not helpful to those around us. So it was so good. And we'll be sure to link that so you can read that. Yeah, that was published, I think, by the – he published it on his own blog, and then the Gospel Coalition picked it up and, and published it, uh, which distributed it to even more people. Uh, the also want to mention that you know several years ago, back in 2016, the SBC at our annual meeting passed a resolution uh, calling uh, or speaking against the display of the Confederate flag. It was called On Sensitivity and Unity Regarding uh, the Confederate Battle Flag, and it was a it was a big deal, even though several years ago for the – uh, for the SBC as a whole uh, to to take this stand and call for the removal of the Confederate battle flag for the same reason, uh, for the sake of love of neighbor, so that so that our brothers and sisters in Christ and for all of our fellow image bearers uh, not to feel threatened uh, or offended every time they see this this flag displayed. So moving on to culture more broadly. So we've already mentioned, and we'll talk about it more uh, with Andrew, the the fallout from the Bostock case. Uh, last week, we are, um, you know, still waiting to find out what it means that the word sex was expanded in Title VII uh, to add uh, or to include uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. There are a lot of people who are still trying to size up the implications. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out was that CT, uh, Christianity Today, offered two pieces uh, that were contrasting what they think the way forward might be. So uh, one was by a professor named Daniel Bennett, and it was a more like it presented more of a cautiously optimistic case uh, for the way forward in terms of uh, the protections for religious freedom remaining intact. Uh, and then Andrew, who we're going to talk to you in a few minutes, uh, also gave a piece where he was uh, less optimistic in terms of he, he was just more clear eyed, I think, about some of the potential threats uh, that are that are down the road for things like religious liberty. So we're interested in that. But as we talked about on the podcast last week, there are still several more rulings uh, yet to come down for this term. And we are waiting for those because several of them will have implications, even for the way that Bostock is applied. Uh, so, you know, some of the uncertainty right now could be resolved even through the Supreme Court cases that are supposed to be handed down in the next few weeks, which brings me to this point, which is to say every day uh, or every time there's a, a opinion day where the Supreme Court is due to hand down rulings, we're always on high alert because every term uh, there, are there are several cases. So there are five that we're deeply engaged in and a couple more uh, that we're also paying close attention to. And and we've only had one of those so far. And so as the term is winding down, we are expecting to receive this. And so every time there's an opinion day, we're on high alert. But uh, Jeff, who was on the podcast last week, is is the you know quarterback of the ERLC's uh, Supreme Court response. And every, you know, every time he's making sure everyone is ready uh, to handle whatever opinion it might be uh, or whatever case it might be addressing. And Lately, he's just been getting everybody prepped and then posting the Charlie Brown uh, gif of Charlie Brown trying to kick the football and Lucy moving the football. So anyway, it's been really, really funny. But I just wanted to, you know, want to take a second and throw that shout out to Jeff. Yeah, he's been doing a great job. And, you know, we're thankful, actually, that some rulings didn't come down yesterday because her site was down. So that would have made uh, talking about these rulings uh, a little hard. So we just, alas, we just wait and we see if Jeff's going to be posting more Charlie Brown gifts. Okay, Josh and Lindsay, we love to talk about the weather on here, but is there anything more 2020 than a Saharan dust storm that's coming our way? 
So CNN reported it's all over the place. There is a large plume of Saharan dust that's on its way to the southeastern United States. I had no idea what this meant. Um, and I've been doing a little research because it's fascinating. But apparently this happens every year. I think we're just really sensitive to it now. But what's going to happen is it's going to make the sky really milky and hazy looking um, and it's probably going to ignite a lot of us with allergies. It's going to inflame those allergies. But on the bright side, we're supposed to have amazing sunsets. Uh, I did hear today on the news that it can cause brown rain. So if you're at the Gulf at the beach during the dust storm with brown rain, sorry about your luck. But at least you'll get nice sunsets and sunrises. All I can say is I'm glad I'm not still in high school or early college and working at the car wash because, you know, working at the car wash is hard anytime, but especially when there's major weather, if there's snow or I can't imagine what it would be like after brown rain, you'll just be out there all day long, day after day, uh, you know, washing and wiping down cars. So my heart goes out to all of the current uh, car wash employees out there. So next up, uh, we want to just cover something that happened uh, here in Tennessee. Uh, there was a major pro-life effort uh, to pass a pro-life bill in the final hours of, of this session of the Tennessee General Assembly. Our friends at Baptist Press have put together uh, some really good coverage of this. Uh, so I'll just give you some of the highlights. They said the bill, which is considered one of the strictest pieces of pro-life legislation in the country, includes a provision that makes an abortion illegal except to save the life of the mother or in cases of serious risk once a fetal heart can be detected, which can be as early as six weeks gestation. The bill also codifies as a class C felony performing or inducing or attempting to perform or induce an abortion upon a pregnant woman if the person knows the woman is seeking an abortion because of the sex of the unborn child, the race of the unborn child, or a prenatal diagnosis, test, or screening indicating Down syndrome or potential Down syndrome in the unborn child. And then further, it requires physicians to determine and inform the mother of the gestational age of the fetus, allow the mother to hear the fetal heartbeat, to conduct an ultrasound and display the images for the mother to see, and explain the fetus dimensions and which external body parts and internal organs are present and visible. So this goes back to what we've been talking about a lot in terms of pro-life legislation, about informed consent, about making sure that, that no mother uh, who might be considering an abortion would do that without you know a full awareness of the development of their child and, and of all the things that are involved. And so this is a massive piece of pro-life legislation that I just want to uh, commend the General Assembly in Tennessee. And then Governor Lee is expected to sign uh, this bill this week. And it will be, no doubt, one of the strongest pieces of pro-life legislation in the country. And we do hope to have a piece um, about this coming up when, in conjunction with Governor Lee signing the legislation. Okay, guys. So you're both on social media. I'm sure you saw these pictures floating around this week or this story going on, but the Barcelona Opera reopened this week. But instead of having people in the audience, it opened to an audience of plants. And I saw uh, this auditorium, which was huge, was filled with more than 2,000 plants. Did you guys see this online? Oh, it was yes. crazy looking, yeah. You know, in addition to just kind of the the sheer, you know, hilarious nature of seeing this opera take place in front of all of these plants was the fact that, uh, you know, people on social media couldn't lay off the jokes. But one of my favorite guys offering up the dad jokes was Jake Tapper, who is, you know, host of the lead on CNN. He, uh, here's three that he had. He said, please remain in your seats. What a time to be alive. And I wanted to go, but hadn't bought any tickets. And all of those were terrible jokes, but it was so so funny. 
It was so funny. I could not stop laughing. Uh, I took those, I texted them to like several different text threads that I'm on uh, just to get people to join me in, in laughing at Jake Tapper's dad humor. Um, but anyway, so that's the Barcelona Opera. Another thing we talked about a lot on the podcast is that, guys, Hamilton is coming. And in fact, the trailer is here. So who have you guys watched it? Yes, multiple times, actually. I have seen the trailer. Yes, I'm excited. I could not possibly be more excited because Hamilton is just, it would be my jam if I were able to have seen it in person. So being able to see it on Disney Plus is something that I am incredibly ready for. And finally, uh, as we wrap up uh, the culture section this week, this one's just for Brent, and it's a word about man's best friend. Uh, I read this week about a 20-year-old dog in West Tennessee uh, who is believed to be the oldest living golden retriever in history. So... 20 years is a very old dog. I can't imagine, you know, I've seen a lot of dogs in their old age and, you know, they, they kind of get really sad as they get too old. I'm not sure, you know, what kind of state uh, this 20 year old dog is in, but that is quite the record. I saw a picture of the dog and he, it didn't look sad. He was all gray in the face. Like his hair was gray, but um, Brent would say that that's because he's lived a long, good life in Tennessee. That's why he lived that long. Exactly. You know, he would. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, Lindsay, Megan, that's our look at This Week in Culture. Every day, we hear countless messages telling us how to think about the world around us. As the culture pulls us in different directions, it's easy to get overwhelmed and disengage completely or even begin to be influenced by the world. But how should we respond to everyday events and issues in a God-honoring way? A new book called Beautifully Distinct, Conversations with Friends on Faith, Life, and Culture, edited by Trillia Newbell, brings together 15 women to discuss films, books, and media. This book also outlines biblical principles for approaching difficult topics like body image and racism and encourages us to shape our lives around Christ. Beautifully Distinct is now available at your favorite bookstore or thegoodbook.com. That's thegoodbook.com. So now we're about to talk to our former colleague and one of our like sincerely closest friends, uh, Andrew Walker. We are really excited to have him on the podcast today. Andrew, since leaving the ERLC, has gone on to Southern Seminary, where he is a professor of ethics. He is an associate dean. He is the head of the Henry Institute, and he does many uh, more incredible things. Uh, we are really excited to have him on the podcast today because for Lindsay, Megan, and I, uh, Andrew really is in real life one of our closest friends. So it's a real joy uh, to have him here with us today. So Andrew, thanks for joining us. And as we're getting started here, just tell us uh, or tell our audience, since we all know the answer to this question, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now. And while you're at it, tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry. Well, first off, it's really great to be with each of you. Uh, it's actually hard to do this podcast with like a serious tone because we're all so close in real life. Uh, but it's really great to be here, especially as an ERLC alum. So currently, as you said, Josh, uh, I'm at Southern Seminary uh, and work there as my main job, but then also have some editorial roles with public discourse and with the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood as well. You know, as you said, my job is uh, to be a professor of ethics and, you know, I actually got my love for ethics uh, as its own proper discipline while serving at the ERLC from roughly 2013 through 2020. And so uh, it's become a first love of mine. And, you know, kind of in, in how I see kind of evangelical landscapes, ethics is one of those kind of disciplines that falls in the background behind, you know, systematic theology or church history. 
Um, but I think it's really, really important. And uh, I'm wanting kind of in my career to help um, bring more attention and focus to uh, the discipline of ethics from a specifically evangelical perspective. Um, I could say a whole lot more about stuff that I'm, I'm working on, but have been at, the, at Southern now for uh, getting close to, I think, eight months. So I'm still relatively new here. Um, but as far as what God is teaching me in this season, uh, I think is just a renewed confidence in the doctrine of providence that every single thing that happens in our lives, uh, even if we don't understand why it's happening in the present, in the long run, it all tends to make sense, even the unfortunate and sad stuff. And so uh, 2020 is a year that all of us are understanding is kind of a miserable year where we're looking to get past it as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, I'm confident in three, four, ten years from now, there will be ways and evidences that each of us can look back and see how God grew us, not just through the COVID experience, but through the whole of 2020. It's a good reminder, Andrew. And I was just reading through the book of Ruth this morning. And it's the same thing. Naomi sees her circumstances as so bleak, but behind the scenes, God is at work for good. So, okay, before we get to another serious question, I just have to tell listeners that your preferred title is actually Andy, not Andrew, being one of your good friends. So if everyone that's listening could just Dr. from here on out, <laughs> Dr. Andy, that would be fabulous. Dr. Andy T. Walker, just for you, Lindsay. He would love that. Um, so this, as you know, this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. And last week, uh, we had a major Supreme Court decision. And you were one of the main evangelical voices talking about what this decision means. So can you give us a little bit of your perspective on where we are? So you're referring to the Bostock decision. And uh, yeah, and I, you know, I gotta be honest with you, I think it is going to be seen as a major inflection point in uh, kind of the, the turn that religious liberty takes in America, I know that there are a lot of great voices who are saying, no, let's just rely on our carve outs and our exemptions uh, and existing statutes. Uh, but kind of how I'm seeing what happened last week is once you accept some of the premises of what goes behind the ideas of sexual orientation and gender identity, you've committed yourself to the deeper metaphysical and ontological uh, ideas behind the sexual revolution. Um, and it's impossible for those ideas to just stay kind of at the abstract level, they're going to have to be worked out in the rest of law uh, just because of what those principles commit you to. So uh, I, I think when you've committed yourself to that, at the legal level, the, the culture will follow. Uh, and so I, I am kind of seeing, I'm, I've been much more pessimistic in my perspective on what's going to happen. Uh, again, if you, if you take the assumptions uncritically, which is what the Supreme Court decision did, I mean, as Alito noted in the dissent, Justice Gorsuch never actually defines what sexual orientation and gender identity even are. Uh, and the reason you can't do that is because if you did, you would find conflicting perspectives even amongst the most fervent activists on that side. Uh, and so all of a sudden, now federal law has bought into incoherent concepts uh, that it's going to be kind of uh, what Eric Erickson says, you will be made to care. Uh, these are not issues that you're going to be able to be indifferent on because you're going to be drafted in to the cause because the cause is now being backed by federal law. And so 
there's the kind of the legal cultural perspective, but then there's also just the philosophical and and ethical perspective behind the decision, because again, they're relying on incoherent definitions of what is a male or a female. Uh, and so what we have done is through a Supreme Court ruling is to engage in what Lewis called the abolition of man. No one who wrote the opinion would say that they did this by intent, um, but by conclusion, what they have done is to say that our notions as a society of male and female are no longer static or stable or concrete. Um, effectively, what the Supreme Court did was say that maleness and femaleness are little more than subjective you know, hyper-malleable relative categories based on psychology um, and stereotype. Uh, and so I don't expect most of society to be kind of trafficking in those categories right now because all we're hearing right now is, you know, love wins. We have, we have bumper sticker theology and bumper sticker phrases uh, that is kind of what's populating the, the American mind right now. But I think when we see the implications of this court ruling worked out in society, it's going to turn both law and culture more against Christianity. And I don't say that to be dour and fearful or panicky, um, but I also think that we don't do ourselves any service to just be Pollyannish uh, and, you know, sticking our heads in the sand and saying everything is just going to be totally fine. Our institutions are totally protected. I can't in good conscience say after last week that that's true. Thanks, Andrew, for that. Um, switching gears, um, you are now a professor at Southern Seminary, which we just said in Louisville. So tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day work there. What do you love about your new role and what excites you? Well, I think the best thing about being a professor is, uh, and similar to life at the ERLC, was that I, I love my field of study. Uh, the fact that I get paid to do and study things that I would otherwise be studying and reading on my own is a real blessing. Uh, now, the the ideal as a professor is that you would have you would have hours upon hours a day to simply read and reflect, <laughs> but that's not necessarily how life goes with the ins and outs of schedules and teachings and revising syllabi and a thousand small little tasks that go into kind of the coherent package of being a professor. But one of the best advantages of being a professor is some of the free time that you have with your schedule, especially in the summer. Uh, right now, I'm waking up pretty early, uh, getting a cup of coffee and going down to my office and uh, putting some jazz music on and writing in the early morning because that's when I'm most alert uh, and, and most focused. Uh, so there's, there's definitely some major freedoms built into the schedule, uh, but you hope that you can have more time for reading and reflecting and writing than you are caught up with the administrative side of things. Uh, but I think that also comes somewhat seasonally based on where you are in the calendar in the semester. Well, listening to you talk, Andrew, reminds me that you are an 85-year-old man stuck in a 35-year-old's body going downstairs with your cup of coffee, listening to your jazz music. I just love it. Yelling at the kids <laughs> on your lawn. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, you know, we are so thankful for the work that you do. Um, and I know people like our interns will often ask you what led you down this path in terms of your career. They just cannot wait to hear um, how you got to where you are. And I know it's probably surprising to you too. So tell us a little bit about that. And 
um, when you became interested in ethics and politics and, and who are some of your major influences? So I think, I mean, that, that goes all the way back to just kind of my temperament and interests. And I've always been someone who has loved ideas and history and philosophy and current events. And so, I mean, as far as back as I can remember, I've always had an interest in that. And then uh, I would say it was probably in my junior year of high school where I read Lee Strobel's The Case for Faith. Uh, and that was the first, what I would say, more philosophical defense of Christianity. And it's actually, in hindsight, a, a pretty basic book, all things considered. But when you're a 17-year-old and you've never been given tools um, to be shown how persuasive and coherent the Christian faith is, it really um, was a, a turning point in how I understood um, the intellectual coherence of Christianity. And um, from there, I majored in kind of religion and theology in undergrad and thought I was going to become a pastor. Uh, but the more I kind of went down the academic train in my studies, the more fruitful I found that. Uh, went to seminary thinking again. Um, being a pastor or a professor was my likelihood, uh, but then took kind of a detour for, you know, roughly 10 years and served in public policy jobs with one in Kentucky and then one in D.C. and then with the ERLC for, for almost seven years. Uh, and then, you know, I, I kind of do feel like being a professor is kind of what I was made to do and um, hopefully will spend a career at Southern Seminary and retire here. That's at least my goal uh, presently. But as far as major influences, uh, there are many. Uh, you could point to individuals like C.S. Lewis, Augustine. Living thinkers would be, uh, I think, Robert George from Princeton, uh, obviously Dr. Moore, uh, Dr. Moeller. Uh, I mean, I could keep going on and on. When When you're kind of engaged in the world of ideas professionally, you find the, the list of people you're influenced by continues to grow and grow exponentially by the year. So just for the sake of, of uh, time, I'll just say those few names. Andrew, that's really good. And, um, you know, one of the things that's cool about this is because we're all friends in real life, we know the best thing about you, which is actually not you. It's your awesome family. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever like who knows you and your wife and your, your children just knows like you guys have such an amazing uh, family. It's such a joy to spend time with you. So one of the things we like to ask people that we have on the show as guests are like what they're going to do with their free time uh, or how they're going to spend right now since we're in the summer season. What are some fun things that you guys are looking forward to uh, doing as a family together this summer? Well, we just returned from some vacation time with uh, my wife's parents. So we always enjoy uh, traveling and getting away. We will uh, go to the lake with some friends here in Kentucky uh, in July. We just love being together. And it doesn't mean necessarily having to go and do wild and crazy things. Um, for us, a walk around the neighborhood or going to Dairy Queen is really meaningful because kind of my philosophy of family life is you can't have family life hinge from one major event or one fun, exciting uh, hilltop experience to the next. Family life is formed kind of in uh, in between those peaks uh, when you're in the valley. And I don't mean the valley in a sad sense, but just it's the day-to-day -day routines and habits that you have as a family where you're in the same house together, you're sharing your meals together, uh, and you're trying to foster an environment where you're talking about Christ and you're trying to form your family and to create an atmosphere that's inviting and warm. Uh, and so that's, I mean, 
not to oversimplify, but that's kind of our plan for the summer is especially with things still kind of in lockdown. We can't go too many places. I will say, though, we finally, after many months, discovered what will be our new go-to Mexican restaurant in the Louisville area. So I foresee many, many additional trips uh, to Gustavo's up in Prospect for uh, some fajitas here on our horizon. Well, it seems like on every episode of our show, we end up talking about food and we're going to be talking about food more in just a, in a little bit. So that's a really great way to close it out. But Andrew, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for joining us. We are grateful to God for uh, the work that he is doing through you up at Southern Seminary and many more places. And we just want to say, man, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, hey, thanks for letting me join you all. And uh, the feeling is mutual. Love everyone on this line. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. I should say, as we kick off the lunchroom segment this week, uh, that our producer Gary has been giving me a hard time because he says, we don't ever eat together anymore. You should call this like the chat room or the Slack channel uh, conversation or whatever. But we'll stick with lunchroom for now. So I'll go first this week. Last week, I talked about this show that was coming to Netflix called The Floor is Lava. And I haven't actually seen the other show that I recommended uh, or talked about, which is the show Don't. Uh, but I did sit down with my family and watch The Floor is Lava. And I got to tell you, that show is entertaining. You know, it's, it's not very good in terms of like, you know, production quality or anything. But but the thing is, like, it just makes you feel like a kid. And it's fun uh, for kids to watch these adults jumping from object to object, trying not to fall into the red, you know, gel- gelatinous floor, which is, uh, you know, it's supposed to be the lava. Anyway, it's hilarious. I will give you a little bit of a language advisory in one of the episodes. Somebody said a word that I was not pleased that my kids heard. So just want to throw that out there for you. But Anyway, it's a great show, and for the most part, it was it was clean and fine. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, though, is that one of the best things about being back in North Carolina for this time is that I have access to some of the best Japanese food. And if you know me, if you've spent any time with me at all, you would know, like, I'm kind of a Japanese food apologist, but more than that, I'm a yum-yum sauce apologist. So if you've not had uh, the yum-yum sauce or the shrimp sauce, you can actually buy it, uh, you know, at, at Walmart or, you know, your grocery store or whatever, but... It's fantastic, and being back in North Carolina for these few weeks has been really, really great because I've had access to all of the quality Japanese food that I want. If you live in the Nashville area and you have recommendations of where you should get some better Japanese food, uh, you should let me know because I will definitely take advantage of it. Two things, Josh. My friend's sister was on The Floor's Lava, the first episode. I have not watched it, but if you watched it, you probably saw her. Katie. Did she her win? Name. I don't, I don't know. remember who won the first episode. Brown hair. You'll have to check it out and tell me because that's awesome. And then um, we have a Japanese food place we like here across from my house called Miso. But is there a reason why there is such good Japanese food in North Carolina that you know of? I I honestly don't know except that like I I grew up here. So I know where all of the good Japanese food places are because there are like probably five within 30 minutes of me. Gotcha. Well, you have to try out Miso when you get back to town. I definitely will. All right, Megan, you're up. What's What are you bringing to the table this week? Okay, so for my lunchroom, um, this is just something fun, something I've been enjoying this week, and it's led me down trail. But Jackie Hill Perry um, and her husband, Preston Perry, are pregnant. Jackie's pregnant. Um, Jackie's been at a lot of our events and writes for us and all kinds of things. Um, but this week, they did their gender reveal for their baby, Um, And it's just really fun because Jackie's been kind of like building it up on social media. She has claimed for her last two pregnancies to have dreams revealing the sex of her 
first two daughters. She had dreams, very specific. She knew they were going to be girls. So this time she had a dream that um, it was going to be a boy. Um, and oh, I mean, just a little bit of a spoiler alert. Um, it's not a boy. It's a girl again. So they're going to have three girls. But the video is just really funny. And it's just really honest that they were kind of disappointed. And so um, it was just a fun watch. And it was fun to just watch them do that with their girls. And then it the video ends with Preston just like pleading for everybody to pray for him as he lives with four women. So I've really enjoyed that. And they have a YouTube channel you can subscribe to where they just do fun things like this. My wife made me sit down and watch that video. And honestly, it was funny. But when Preston came on at the end and he was basically just saying, what am I going to do with all these attitudes? And he was talking about life, uh, living in a house full of women. It was, uh, man, it was really funny. So you should check out the link and make sure that you watch that because it is just hilarious. So for my uh, lunchroom segment, which is just fun too, I'd forgotten about this. But this morning, a lot of times... While I'm getting ready or making the bed, before I take a shower, I will listen to some podcasts. Sometimes I go in and out of my habits. but And this morning, I, 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 didn't want, I never want to stop when I get in the shower, but I can't hear anything if I'm in the shower. And I forgot that I had gotten this Bluetooth shower speaker <laughs> a long time ago that like sticks to the mirror or whatever. And it was in my daughter's bathroom by her room. So I went and got it. And it was just so fun to get to continue to listen to my podcast in the shower this morning. There's a link for one of those. I got a much cheaper one than the one that's listed in this link. So you can find them anywhere, but actually it was really fun. And then I forgot that there's this site, 22 Words, which actually used to be a lot different than it is run by John Piper's son, Abraham. So it's evolved over the years, but now I go to it because it gets me on Twitter with this clickbait, but it's all these other random Amazon finds. And I can talk about getting lost on the internet, Megan. I can just get lost looking at all these random things and wanting to buy a bunch of them. So I would encourage you to go look. There really are some fun, fun gift ideas or whatever. It's a fun little site, but Bluetooth shower speaker, I highly recommend it. You know, for everyone's sake, we'll wrap up this conversation and we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast today. But for uh, Megan and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thank Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. But for Lindsay and Megan and myself and for Brent, who is somewhere in Florida, we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.